as that if you have a person like him who was leading the federal police, he was leading the prison system, so he was leading the whole apparatus, and he was helping one cartel and facing the other cartels to have this cartel. So what he was creating was this horrible place to live in so many places in Mexico, and people were forced to leave their towns, leave their cities, seek asylum. So we should analyze also the crisis, the immigration crisis that we have in this uh, country and in Mexico, and all the, the, the people looking for asylum under also under the perspective of this war on drugs, this so-called war on drugs. Now we know this false war on drugs and the responsibilities of people that the U.S. government trusted and created a, a horrible crisis. And that crisis impacted not just in Mexico, but in the region, in Central America, and of course, also here in the United States. Well, we want to thank you both for your incredible reporting on this. Uh, Penny Le Ramirez and Maria Nahosa, co-hosts of the podcast USA versus Garcia Luna. Episode 10 is out on Friday. They're laying out the tracks today. That does it for our show. Um, to go to democracynow.org, you can see Democracy Now! in English and also headline. You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. Next up, it's Wednesday Talk Radio with Paul Rowland. It's 8 a.m. Talk Radio. I am your host, Paul Rowland. Be with you till nine o'clock this morning. And before I get to my guest, Trevor Aronson, who will be talking about the FBI subject of that song, I have some sad news. Some of you may have already heard, uh, many of you probably didn't, but uh, Per Fagering passed away on Saturday morning. It's uh, <clears throat> very sad news for and his family, for all of us at KBU, for listeners of his longtime program, Fight the Empire. I don't have a, a full obituary or a biography. I hope someone's working on that that we will bring to you at some point. But uh, Per started volunteering with KBU way back in 1977. And I think he's pretty continuously throughout the years. Um, for many years, as I said, he's hosted the program Fight the Empire, which uh, actually most recently came on right after this one. And a couple times we actually even talked together. Um, I, I just uh, I came across a, a, an old program, an interview uh, when John Shuck was here. I don't know if you knew that actually I found out fairly recently John Shuck himself died uh, a year and a half ago. 
but um, he had a program for a while, The Beloved Community, and he interviewed Per Fogreen on uh, October 11th, 2019. So you can look that up on Kebu and get a, an interview with Per Fogreen about his uh, novel, well, about himself and his novel, uh, Jack Maloney's Century. And I gleaned a few facts. Uh, he actually had worked at a gold mine in Alaska and on a Norwegian freighter. He was a Norwegian by uh, family origin. And uh, he was a, a newspaper reporter. And uh, yeah, sorry to have to bring that news to you, but uh, he will be missed. Okay, and now to our program for today. Um, you know, right-wing extremism is the, is the main domestic threat, but the FBI is still spying on and infiltrating left-leaning racial and social justice movements. Today's guest, Trevor Aronson, is the host of the Alphabet Boys podcast, which, uh, as it says, reveals the secret investigations of the FBI, CIA, DEA, ATF, and other alphabet agencies uh, he was on Democracy Now! recently, last week. You may have heard that. Talking about the first step, mostly about the first episode of the podcast, about the FBI informant who infiltrated the Denver Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of the George Floyd murder by police. And as I was saying, despite his relatively recent reputation among some for going after right-wing Republicans and extremists, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, of Investigation has never given up it's a disproportionate tendency to spy and infiltrate and disrupt, even to the point in the several uh, cases, one of which is in the news now with Malcolm X, of framing and assassinating leaders. It's disproportionate tendency to spy on, infiltrate, and disrupt anti-racist, anti-capitalist, labor, and other progressive and leftist organizers, activist groups, and movements. Aronson is also a contributing writer at The Intercept, and he's author of The Terror Factory, Inside the FBI's Manufactured War on Terrorism. He was a 2020 ASU Future Security Fellow at New America and a 2015 TED Fellow. He's also a creator and host of the documentary podcast, American ISIS, which tells the story of uh, Russell Dennison, an American who joined the Islamic State as a fighter in Syria, and also of a chameleon, High Rollers, which investigates an FBI undercover operation in Las Vegas. Uh, and with that, uh, good good morning, Trevor. Morning, Paul. Thanks for having me. You're quite welcome. Uh, so uh, you had said uh, when I got in touch with you about coming on that you were actually on KBU back in uh, 2011, around the time that the Terror Factory came out. I guess you were doing a event at Powell's? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think I, I, I was an error when I wrote that. I, so it would have been 2013 when my book came out. Um, and I, I did an event at Powell's. So I remember being in the studio what nearly uh, 10 years ago so i'm happy to be back on the air and we're we're very glad to have you and of course as i mentioned and i don't know if you were actually listening at the tail end of democracy now or if you already heard that broadcast the the uh, alphabet soup uh, is much in the news um the there the lawsuit the uh I don't know, we can just get that out of the way right now i know it's not near your expertise but uh, the lawsuit is both against both the fbi and the cia and of course, we can throw in with the news about the uh, conviction of Garcia Luna, we can throw in the DEA and probably some others as well. So it's a, a big day for the alphabet boys. So Anna, do you just give us your impressions on, uh, you know, uh, yesterday was the uh, anniversary of the uh, assassination of Malcolm X. And now this is a big lawsuit coming out. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there is, you know, what, uh, 50 some years later, there's a lot still unknown about um, Malcolm X's murder. Um, you know, what we do know is that the, the, the men that were convicted of killing him were, were exonerated, what was that, about two years ago? And um, Malcolm X's family released a letter about a year ago from a deceased NYPD detective who alleged that the NYPD and the FBI were behind Malcolm X's killing. And so now, based on that letter, um, his family has filed a lawsuit, I believe today, um, against the FBI and other agencies alleging their complicity and involvement in his assassination. Uh, which is fascinating, right? I mean, we still don't know a lot um, about this, but I mean, in the larger context of the FBI's infiltration and subversion of black political movements in the 1960s, you know, it, it's certainly, you know, particularly fascinating. And I think also fascinating given, you know, what we're, you know, seeing now with kind of the larger infiltration of the racial justice movement in, the tw in 2020. So it really kind of speaks to the larger history of the FBI's 
view of black political activists as being um, anti-government extremists. Um, but again, you know, we don't know, you know, we can't say with certainty that the government had that role, but, you know, hopefully this lawsuit will, you know, answer some of the kind of lingering questions, you know, particularly now that the men convicted of, it, of, of killing him have been exonerated. Who, who exactly killed Malcolm X is the question. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I'm looking at the Democracy Now! Uh, page for uh, your program, your uh, your appearance there. It's called uh, Coento Pro 2.0, How the FBI Infiltrated BLM Protests After Police Murder of, of George Floyd. And, uh, you know, I you hear it on Democracy Now!, uh, probably not too far else. I, I, I think uh, uh, um, the more educated, the more gung-ho maybe uh, activists, the uh, current, you know, uh, generation of activists, especially those who who have been either the victims or know about, you know, the FBI infiltration and such, which now we know more about since your podcast. But um, so, uh, but I, I think the Coental Pro is probably not that well known among the general public. There's We have such short memories. But uh, so I guess uh, as we get into this, uh, we, I want to talk about sort of your knowledge of of that period in time, um, which of course the the assassination of Malcolm X brings brings to mind, and you know many others. Um, uh, uh, you know, there's rumors that uh, even the, they were involved with the Mal, uh, Martin Luther King's assassination and, and many other things. But um, but before we get into all that, I just want to sort of get a, a little bit about about your history. Um, you were an investigative reporter. You were with Al Jazeera uh, around the time that you wrote that book. D maybe just give us a little bit, maybe sort of about your political coming of age, uh, so to speak, and and how you got into investigative journalism. Yeah, so so I've been in journalism a little over 20 years now, and for a, a good part of that time, I'd really been fascinated by the use of police informants and investigations and, and undercover practices. And, and that's ultimately kind of how I gravitated to looking at the FBI's um, counterterrorism program, because I began to realize in the late 2000s that there was a nexus between the FBI's very aggressive recruitment of informants from within Muslim communities, where they were using things like immigration and other non-criminal points of leverage to recruit young Muslims to become informants. And then the, um, there was a relation with that to the sting operations that they were running, where they were using these informants to find impressionable young people. And they would say, you know, hey, do you want to get involved in a bomb plot? Like, I can make that happen. You know, a case that I think your listeners in Portland would be familiar, familiar with was Muhammad, Osman Muhammad, who I believe in 2010 was alleged to have uh, been involved in a plot to detonate the Christmas tree lighting um, celebration or bomb the Christmas tree lighting celebration in Portland in what was an undercover sting that the, um, that the FBI put on. And so my book and, and a lot of my reporting from 10 years ago really focused on this question of whether the FBI was creating the terrorists it was searching for through the use of these very aggressive sting operations where they would catch someone who could not commit the crime on their own, but that the FBI then provided them with the means, the opportunity, and in almost all of these cases, the, the bomb or the fake bomb that they would use. And so many of the cases that, you know, in the 20 years after 9-11 that the FBI came forward and said, you know, look at this terrorism plot foiled, were cases that... Um, ultimately the FBI was responsible for, for creating. Um, and so, you know, that's been a, a large focus of my work and, and, you know, we can get into how that relates to what happened in Denver and Alphabet Boys and the infiltration of the racial justice movement. But I think, you know, what's kind of fascinating for me is like, I think you can draw these connections and we can talk more about this if you're interested between like, you know, from, from the COINTELPRO of the 60s to the expansion of the FBI powers post 9-11 to what we're seeing now, which is kind of a new form of COINTELPRO um, that leverages in some ways the powers that the FBI was given in the post-9-11 era. Well, and of course, people who have read uh, some of the the good books that are out there on the history of the FBI and the, specifically the COINTELPRO era know that that kind of um, framing and uh, really setting up uh, people to and then, and then swooping in and, and arresting them was was used widely in the 1960s with the Black Panthers, American Indian Movement, and, and others. Um, so yeah, uh, for, go ahead. Good. No, no, I was going to say for sure. Yeah, it's important to like you know the the quick context, and obviously COINTELPRO is a huge topic, but you know the quick context obviously was that J. Edgar Hoover, then the FBI director, had had labeled a number of groups as quote unquote subversive 
to American society that included black political groups like the Panthers, the American Indian Movement, as you, as you said. And, and what they did was not just investigate these organizations for crimes, but, but deliberately insert informants to try to subvert and sow chaos within these organizations. So basically, you know, make it more difficult for them to do their political work or political activism. And so these were investigations that had a very clear political bent. These were investigations that were ultimately found to be illegal by the church committee in 75 and 76. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, you know, that is something that I think people forget about the FBI in some ways because it, it was some time ago, but, you know, that the FBI was so specifically bent on undermining political movements uh, was a very real part of its history. And of course, you know, what I said in, in my, uh, on my program page, the introduction to this, this program about the, you know, them getting kind of a, a refurbished image in a way, and, and really so many people on the, the, the left progressives, you know, cheering on the FBI for their their work in um, going after the people involved in the January sixth insurrection, you know, going after and and of course rightfully so the, you know these these uh, uh, radicalized uh, right wing extremists uh, of various kinds, you know the the neo Ku Klux Klaners, um, you know Sh Charlottesville and all the rest. Uh, it it it's it's it's, it's it's hard for for people, you know. I'm I'm not of the '60s. I'm kind of just after the '60s generation, so I didn't experience it. But I certainly have w read widely and talked to people who experienced it. And uh, so, people of of my generation, certainly older generations, are you know a, a little cynical about uh, you know the the FBI. I mean, you know, maybe. It's certainly a good thing. I mean, if there is going to be an FBI, if there is going to be, you know, a national police, um, at least uh, let them go after, you know, the real bad guys, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's been this strange political realignment that's happened recently. You know, when I was, was looking at how the FBI was entrapping Muslims in the post-9-11 era, you know, I would get, you know, a fair amount of um, attention from more liberal circles of media and was largely ignored by more conservative circles. And then I think in the post-Trump era, we saw this weird realignment happen where, you know, because of the FBI's investigations of Trump, um, conservatives and right-wing media became very antagonistic toward the FBI. And at the same time, then, uh, um, more liberal media and the Democrats became uh, almost defenders of the FBI as if they were like kind of the guardians of the republic given the, the Trump investigation. And so ha there has been this very, very strange realignment that's happened where you have conservatives like Jim Jordan very critical of the FBI. But the problem is that, you know, the true problem with the FBI is that it's this agency that has enormous power and abuses all sorts of people across the political spectrum, right? You can point to plenty of cases involving right-wing activists, and you can point to far more, I would argue, cases involving left-wing activists. But, you know, right now there's this subcommittee going on where Jim Jordan is trying to create this narrative that the FBI is fully discriminatory against <laughs> targeting right-wing groups. And that's just not true, right? I mean, that's the case in Denver, that we reveal on Alphabet Voice shows that you know there there's like there's significant infiltration and investigation of left-wing uh, political activists and uh, and so any so I think you know the the irony at this moment I think is that you know the real the, given the FBI's enormous powers and how little oversight it's received in recent decades I think there is a time this this could be a time for a new new kind of so-called church committee but that's not really what's happening on Capitol Hill right now what they're doing is like trying to create a very convenient political narrative to suggest that the FBI is against conservatives when the facts don't support that case at all. Indeed. And again, uh, this is Wednesday Talk Radio. I'm host Paul Rowland. So uh, every every Wednesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m., along with the uh, other talk radio shows on the other days of the week. And I'm speaking with uh, Trevor Aronson, again, who's got this new podcast, Alphabet Boys, digging in to the uh, alphabet soup of a... Uh, investigative agencies that uh as we said were uh, are, have a, a a long history of of abuses and he's also the uh, author of uh, the terror factory contributing writer for the intercept and i just uh, noticed actually on your website uh trevoraronson.com that's a double a aronson um you co-founded the nonprofit florida center for investigative reporting which maybe we can talk about as well. But before we do any of that, I do need to let you know that we are three days into our winter membership drive, which is going from uh, this past Monday, February 20th through March 25th. 
And we have a, a relatively modest on-air goal of $17,000. And we would like you to do your part if you're able and uh, give us your love and support, which keeps us on the air and having this kind of programming, which you really appreciate. And uh, you can do go to kbo.fm, which is our website, and uh, click on the donate there. You can also text KBOO to 44321. You can also, as always, mail your uh, check to KBO at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. And uh, yeah, we'll talk more about that as we go along. But now let's get back to our, our guests. So, yeah, there's a, there's just such a, a, a long history. And uh, let's let's just get into the, the present tense and the subject of uh, the first episode of your program. It's very interesting to, to, to you know, because people have been speculating. People have speculated on this program about uh, people have expressed, people have been involved, who were involved in those 2020 protests, which were very hot, as you know, in Portland and lasted, I guess, more continuously longer than uh, just about anywhere else, and uh, brought up a lot of very violent repression. Uh, Trump's set in uh, the federales here, which uh, got some news. And uh, I think, I think actually the but I, I you probably know more about this than I do. There is a lawsuit, and I think it uh, it actually they got it got dropped eventually, or the the judge uh, ruled against it. But I should have known more about that before I started saying that. Um. So, so yeah, there was speculation about about who might be an informant. People were uh, saying that one of the things that discourages people from getting involved is worry about uh, informants and infiltrators. So talk about uh, talk about the what you found out what happened in Denver, Colorado. Sure, yeah. So so this is part of a, a podcast series that I launched with Western Sound in Los Angeles, a production company, and iHeart Podcast as a distributor. And Alphabet Boys is a multi-season podcast, so we're, we're currently committed for two seasons. And the first season just came out, and so the first season tells the story of a single case over ten episodes in a in a narrative fashion. So we're mixing narrative storytelling with investigative reporting. And what we reveal is this undercover investigation that occurred in Denver in the summer of 2020, where the FBI had inserted an informant into the racial justice movement. And we obtained about 300 pages of internal records um, about this operation. And we um, obtained the undercover recordings from the informant. And so just to give you a little bit of context, you know, given my history of reporting on the FBI's counterterrorism practices and the use of informants and sting operations. I remember being, you know, like many Americans at home watching the summer of 2020, seeing the demonstrations, hearing about things like happening in Portland with the, with the homeless security agents, and really wondering, you know, what is the FBI doing in, right now? Um, because that was kind of the, 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 little known, um, uh, the, the little known issue, right? There are a lot of questions about what the FBI, the largest and most powerful law enforcement agency, was doing in the summer of 2020. And my theory had been that they were going to use the type of powers and tactics that they'd uh, refined during the war on terror against these demonstrators. And I sat out to try to find evidence of that and continually struck out. And then finally, about a year ago, I was able to obtain these recordings um, in internal records that showed what the FBI did. And then we reported that out, and that becomes the first season or the first 10 episodes of, of Alphabet Boys. And, and what, what, we, what we show is that the FBI recruited a violent felon, a man who had a history of convictions for sexual assault and menacing with a weapon, had a long, long history of deception. Um, they, they recruited him to become an informant and then insert himself into the racial justice movement in Denver and try to not only encourage the peaceful protest to become violent, but to entrap specific activists in crimes. And so what he did that was very reminiscent of COINTELPRO is that he would go in, and this was a man who was pushing 50 years old, a white guy, tattoos, looked like a biker, wore military fatigues, and no joke, drove a silver hearse that was filled with weapons. So this was someone that by appearances isn't someone who you'd expect to see in the racial justice movement. He caught a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of people saw him suspiciously, but the way he was able to kind of counter that suspicion and in turn rise up into a leadership position in the racial justice movement 
is he started accusing the real leaders of the movement of being FBI informants themselves, a practice called snitch jacketing that goes back to the 1960s in COINTELPRO, where FBI informants would accuse real leaders of being informants, so mistrust within the organization, and then create a vacuum, a leadership vacuum that they could then fill. And that's what this informant, Mickey Windecker, did. That's just, I, I listened to that. Well, I listened to the, I actually haven't listened to the full, full, um, first podcast yet but uh, i i heard the excerpts on on democracy now and i heard your your interview and i heard the uh, zebedias hall who was a, a denver activist who was uh who's got caught up in that and and also my former fbi uh, special agent mike germ was also on there but it, it i don't know it was, it was a little shocking to me that that somebody so new and obviously, you don't have anything to really say about this, but so new would, would be able to exercise those those sorts of tactics. It, you know, I, you know, I was I was involved in, in Earth First back in its its heyday, in the '80s and early '90s, and anybody who came in and started immediately talking about guns and escalating and stuff was just suspect because. You know, you, you got to know people. You got to anyway. I don't know if it's also part of the the sort of general amnesia and the sort of the lack of sort of generational uh, memory in the movements or whatever. But that that it didn't raise more red flags than than this guy did. It just is kind of shocking to me. It is surprising. I mean, I think there are a couple of factors at play, or a few factors at play. I think one was that you know maybe there is a bit of um, you know generational amnesia, as you said, like people not remembering that these are the exact type of, type of tactics that were used in the 1960s. Um, I also think one of the things that was happening was that when, when Mickey Windecker, the informant, came on the scene in, in the Denver area, there was a kind of a lot of trauma. Like there were, you know, the, the police had been particularly aggressive in Denver. Um, peaceful protests were met with riot gear and uh, full volume streams of pepper spray and um, and rubber bullets, and the, the Denver area police were just overly aggressive. And I think a lot of people were mad, they were frustrated, and they were kind of at their wit's end. And so they were maybe willing to entertain ideas of violence, even if they weren't willing to cross that line, in a way they wouldn't have been were it not for the Denver police being so aggressive. And then the other thing that Mickey did, Mickey Windecker, the informant, did that I think was, if, if, maybe it was accidental, maybe it was sophisticated in its, in, its, um, in its selection, but what he did very quickly was he... He allied with young activists, with the Young Democratic Socialists of America, or YDSA. And these activists were very young, late teens, early 20s, very idealistic and arguably quite naive. And because he allied with them, a lot of the maybe the, the more experienced activists who were suspicious of Mickey kind of put aside their suspicions because they felt like, okay, well, this guy seems really suspicious, but if he's with those YDSA activists, he must be okay. And I think that's how he was able to kind of weasel his way in to the movement in some ways. I mean, I certainly it is concerning giving how outwardly advocating or so how, how he outwardly advocated um, violence that he would, you know, get people following him. But I think this was something that happened slowly over time. Um, and, you know, that said, there were a lot of people that Mickey approached that just stayed away from him for all of the reasons you, you suggested. But at the same time, there were people that he attracted. That said, you know, while a number of people, I think, did things that were highly unwise, um, none of the crimes that the people were alleged to have committed related to Mickey could have happened were it not for Mickey making them happen. You know, for example, exactly. you know, Mickey tried to get activists to commit to an assassination plot against the attorney general, got two activists to talk about it. But ultimately, both activists were like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And so that shows you the level of ambition that the feds had in trying to stitch together a plot that they could then tell the public, look at these dangerous Black Lives Matter activists. They are trying to assassinate the state's attorney general, even though that, that wasn't, wasn't the case at all. And I think it's also important to understand the context in which this happened. Um, you know, this is the Trump administration, the final year of the Trump administration. During the first year of the Trump administration in 2017, um, the FBI had defined um, uh, black political ideology as our black political activism as so-called black identity extremism. And so there was a there was an internal report that was written that was the evidence was very thin 
and it was honestly, I mean, it was intellectually dishonest, but it made this made the case that there was a rising form of black extremism, black political extremism called black identity extremism. Um, this was met with fury on Capitol Hill and in the media when this was exposed, and the FBI later changed the category to racially motivated violent extremism and coupled it with white supremacists and other far-right groups. Um, but that said, I think within the Bureau, there was this perception when 2020 happened, the summer 2020 happened, that, that this wasn't just peaceful protest, that this was potentially the seeds of violence and terrorism. And so I think the Bureau is predisposed to assume that these, these protesters would do something like that, would get involved in some sort of assassination plot, even though they ultimately yeah. didn't. And, and, the, and the other thing I want to mention briefly, and I think this is important, is the, the FBI files that we obtained clearly show that the FBI launched its investigation based on First Amendment protected activities, that when they assigned Vicki Windecker to be an informant to go into the Denver protest, the only information Mickey had provided to the FBI at that point was that these, these activists had, had given, um, had used incendiary rhetoric, things like, we need to burn the city down. Um, obviously, that's a concerning statement, but it's nonetheless protected by free speech. And yet they used that to launch the investigation, which goes against the very stated policy of the FBI director has given to Congress in the past, which is that the FBI does not investigate speech and does not investigate ideology. What we can show is that in Denver, the FBI did exactly that. They launched an undercover investigation into the racial justice movement based solely on First Amendment protected activities. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just want to say one thing while it's still in my mind uh, before I open it up to callers, 503-231-8187, 503-231-8187. I guess I was thinking you were talking about this informant uh, infiltrator Mickey, who uh, who caused a lot of damage there in Denver, as as they always do. It it takes a you know it adds trauma to trauma. It it adds distrust to all you know scenes that already have their own dramas and tensions and conflicts, and it, it certainly doesn't help when something like that happens. But I was thinking why another reason why he might have uh, gained access is. You know, you mentioned a lot of the people he, he associated, he surrounded himself with were a lot of young activists. He probably had his own sort of aura of authenticity, you know, the tattoos, you know, the, you know, maybe seemed like a working class guy, you know. Yeah, I think that probably had something to do with it, yeah. For sure, and I, I think I, I, did, I did neglect to mention that part of his identity was that he had claimed to be uh, a previous fighter for the French Foreign Legion, uh -huh. the Kurdish Fighting Force. And he had guns in his car, and what, 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 how he described himself was like, I'm this former, uh, you know, fighter with a, foreign, with a foreign military, and I'm down with the Black Lives Matter movement, and I'm here to kind of help you understand how to defend yourself against the police. And, and he, you know, he portrayed himself as someone who was really, you know, battle-hardened, world-weary, like understood how things worked. And I think that was enticing to young activists. He also claimed... Um, that as a, as a member of the Peshmerga, he was affiliated with the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is a, which is a communist party in the Kurdistan region. Uh, a number of the YDSA and socialist activists found that kind of like a brother in, brother in arms kind of thing or an ideological brother. And I think that was part of the seduction. Again, I think a, a, the number, a number of young activists that allied with him were quite naive, but it was because of those young activists he was able to kind of create a cover that helped him bolster his credibility when he otherwise might might not have right right you, you gotta you gotta ha find the right uh, allies to do to do what he did i guess another thing um is as as an as an you know activist i've been a activist for long periods of my life and i you know i've kind of understand some of the dynamics of of recruitment of you know uh clandestine versus above ground organizing various things you know at that black lives matter that iteration of it kind of burst on the scene quite quite suddenly in, in a lot of ways and, and so a lot of people came into the movement so you know you you certainly had long-standing organizations people from long-standing organizations in it but I, I kind of assume similar to Portland I didn't participate because most of the protests happened you know started after nine or ten at night and I was generally uh, get, ready to get to bed by then but anyway um, so so the 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 you know whatever organizing happened you know kind of maybe a lot like occupy was kind of more somewhat spontaneous um maybe there wasn't a lot of pre-organizing maybe it happened sort of on the fly at the demonstrations you know 
I, I don't know how the you know how they ran meetings or whatever, but it seems like in situations like that where you don't have you know sort of long time so, so you might call organizational development and sort of protocols and sort of uh, you know uh, customs habits established you know way methods for for bringing people in for sort of sussing people out those things kind of didn't really have time to develop. For sure. So, so I, I, I did not, and I was not involved in any of the 2020 protests, but I can tell you from reporting out what happened in Denver, what happened there, which I think is reflective of, of other cities, possibly Portland as well, is that, you know, these, these demonstrations were described by the media as quote unquote Black Lives Matter demonstrations. And it gives this impression that there is maybe one or two organizations that are organizing these demonstrations and there's kind of a more of a monolithic structure. And, and that just wasn't the case in Denver, and I believe that's true of other cities as well, which is what there was was a lot of different groups that were coming together to hold these these protests. And, you know, I know in Denver, for example, a lot of the black activists were frustrated that these demonstrations started as ways of raising awareness of police brutality against unarmed black Americans and, and, and the murder of unarmed black Americans. And then they kind of, the message kind of splintered as, as more and more groups with different political causes came to be part of that. And so... There, there wasn't any kind of monolithic structure or monolithic message toward the end of that summer. And as a result of that, you had a number of different groups and factions at play as, in these demonstrations. And so there, there wasn't one clear leader, there wasn't one clear group. And as a result of that, you had a number of new people just kind of coming in and out. Uh, and so in that way, Mickey was a, Mickey Windecker, the informant, was able to take advantage of that in a way that maybe didn't, maybe wasn't as problematic in, say, the 60s when maybe there was more of a structure of organizations with the, and I'm speculating, but, but there, was a, there, was a, there was enough kind of chaos within the organizations that were protesting that Mickey was able to take advantage of that. And I think that's an important thing to point out, mm -hmm. which is uh, that, you know, for people who weren't at the demonstrations, I think there is a, is a perception that there was, there, was, there, were more, there was a more central organized, there was, there was a greater central organization than there really was. Mm -hmm. And again, while we wait for uh, uh, listeners to start calling in and interacting with my guest Trevor Aronson about his uh, podcast series Alphabet Boys, looking into the uh, the ways and abuses of the, in this case, the FBI and uh, eventually, I guess, other uh, alphabet intelligence agencies. Um, waiting for people to call in at 503-231-8187. I did want to once again remind people we are in our uh, winter membership drive, which we're calling All Thrills, No Frills, Volume 2. We did one of these last year. And uh, we're looking for your support. We'd love to have you as a monthly sustaining member. Uh, you know, just uh, if you have a, a bank account with uh, some extra cash to uh, to give, throw our way um, and keep this station going and thriving, and uh, continuing the kind of programming you're hearing today, uh, we would like you to go to kboo.fm slash give, or you can text KBOO to 44321. Those are two easy ways. There's a couple other ways to do it, which I'll mention. So, yeah, I mean, we've been around for 54 years. We are definitely one of the longest-running community stations in the country. I, be I believe the longest-running you know, if you exclude the Pacifica stations, which are a kind of a different, separate thing, although brothers and sisters in, in the media arms, as it were. Um, we uh, have 80% of our funding does come from our members. We don't take uh, corporate cash. We take a little bit of uh, government assistance through the uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We're a nonprofit, a registered 501c3, so of course your donations are tax deductible. And you know, less than 10% of our listeners are actually members. Um, uh, you know, it's it's uh, amazing that we're able to, uh, you know, get all the support we need with a relatively small proportion. We'd like to just sort of up that percentage just a few notches if we could. So if you're able, please uh, again go to kboo.fm or text kboo to 443 Two, one, or you can send your check to KBOO Radio, 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, 97214. And uh, most important of all is you get the 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, every day of the year, 
rich cultural uh, music and political programming and other kinds. And uh, like I'm talking with Trevor Aronson right now. I, You know, Trevor, I was thinking one of the things I like about it in addition, uh, uh, in addition to just the fact that because I have a radio show, I'm able to get people like you on, um, which is really a, 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 a great uh, privilege and, and gift. And uh, I, I, I often, or well, you know, a few times a year, hear something on democracy now that really sparks my interest. And of course, uh, journalists like yourself who are doing the kind of work you do are, uh, frankly, a lot easier to get hold of than a lot of other uh, people, um, you know, with a maybe greater fame or even some people with a lot of fame are, are easier to get a hold of. Just uh, but anyway, um, but I what I like is is you know you, I hear you on Democracy Now, but just for a few minutes, and so when I get you on my hour long show, and maybe you appreciate this too, I get to hear a little more, a little bit about what your life is about, what your interests are, some of your other reporting, and a little more in depth uh, into the subjects that were covered on Democracy Now. I don't know how much opportunity, how much opportunity do you get to have sort of longer on-air conversations? Yeah, it's rare. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, a challenge with media today is that people's attention span is, is, um, is low and media doesn't want to give long, do long segments for various commercial reasons. And so I think, you know, nonprofit stations like yours or community radio stations like yours really offer an opportunity to talk about stories that embrace their complexity, right? And I think, you know, for this project, I've done a number of interviews with, with TV and, um, you know, you have to kind of encapsulate what happened very quickly. And I, I don't feel like viewers get a full understanding of the complexities of the story. But, you know, I think if you're able to offer a longer segment like this one, you, you get a chance to do that. So I, I appreciate the platform. And you're quite welcome. And it, it's what uh, makes keeps KBU relevant and lively, and uh, and hopefully of great interest to our listeners, who usually are a lot quicker on the dial. I guess they're really uh, in, mostly interested in what you have to say. Um, we can get back into you know this uh, the subject of your podcast. I'm kind of looking at your at your intercept page, um, and some of it is stuff you've covered. Um, you know what we've already been talking about, but there's a lot of other interesting things. Um, I don't know. There's this article from uh, uh, well, actually, it's all the way back September 11th, 2021, uh, obvious uh, date. Uh, FBI terrorism stings two decades of national security theater, and I know you, you kind of you've covered a fair amount how the FBI in the wake of 9/11 really ramped up their operations. Um, you call it national security theater. That's an interesting. It is. It is kind of. It is a form of theater. They really. They. They. They probably have people who, who actually are paid to like write the scripts for how they conduct these sting operations. These. These frame ups. For sure, you know. I mean, we've seen you know dozens and dozens of these sting operations in in the post nine eleven era, where the FBI uses an, an informant, usually an informant, sometimes an undercover agent who paid tens of thousands of dollars to push someone toward a plot to get involved in, in a bomb plot or some sort of other attack. And the FBI engineers everything. They provide the weapons, they provide the planning, they provide in some cases the transportation. There have been targets of sting operations who have not had the money to go from one place to the other in order to pursue their supposed terrorist attack, and the FBI gives them the money, right? So they're, they're facilitating every step of the process. and. Um, there was a case, for example, in Florida in 20, I believe 2014, where there were, um, there were recordings that were accidentally made by the FBI agent where, you know, he would go meet with the target of the investigation and forget to turn off his recording device and then go speak with his fellow agents and, and the U.S. Attorney's Office. And we, we were able to get a transcript of those recordings. And, you know, they were even discussing with the U.S. Attorney's Office how they needed a quote-unquote Hollywood ending for their sting operation, right? And for, that what they meant by that was the, to get him to walk up to the line to take possession of, of the bomb. Um, and to me, that just speaks volumes to the kind of cynicism that the FBI has in these cases, that, that this is really about building cases that you can then present to your bosses and the public and Congress as a terrorism plot foiled, then it is about really ter foiling terrorism plots. And this is all about money, right? The FBI receives billions of dollars counterterrorism funding every year from Congress. It's the largest part of its budget. And like any agency, it wants to preserve that money. And so it can't say, you know, hey, Congress, I, I took your $3 billion and we didn't find any terrorists. 
it, there's a direct incentive to build these cases. Um, and, I, and I think that's where kind of the cynicism and the injustice of this comes from, which is that they're ultimately framing up people who are just impressionable and, and, and they're not in any way stopping real plots and in that way not in any way keeping us any safer, which is was the purpose of this funding in the first place. So, so thinking about this a, a little more, uh, it occurs to me that since it's happened so often, there must be there must actually be training involved into how to uh, under how to uh, how to stage these operations. Have you gotten any sort of window into how the the you know into the the culture the the training of the FBI how they how they approach these operations so it's a great question it's always been my theory that there is some sort of manual within the fbi that that has never seen the light of day as far as i know uh, but what you can do is trace pretty easily how these these um things evolved you know if you look going back you know the earliest things were in 2005 2006 and you see a lot of these plots in miami um and i believe that's because they adapted drug war tactics you know essentially the the sting operations that they use today where they provide a bomb um, to someone are very reminiscent to the you know 80s and 90s drug war tactics where they would provide a suitcase of cocaine to someone and when they open it up it's like bam you're arrested and I think that's you know what the reason that we saw the evolution of this tactic and re the refining of the tactic in Miami because there was a longer history of drug war stings there and then once those cases were successful if you kind of were to plot on a map or on a timeline the the cases since then you see you know the proliferation of these tactics through bureau offices around the country and so is there is there a playbook is there a manual there might be i've never seen it but you can very clearly see that agents were kind of taking lessons from agents in other offices and then refining those tactics to the point that i believe you know there haven't been terrorism stings in every state but in the vast majority of states there have been terrorism stings and in any state with a significant population there have been terrorism stings well, it looks like we have a couple callers, but before we get to our callers, um, and I guess uh, my board operator is still on the phone with one of them anyway. So, you know, we're here in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, and there hasn't been a lot of this kind of thing uh, recently, but uh, you obviously must know that there's a, a long history of animal rights and uh, Earth Liberation Front radical environmental activism here. Um, and there's uh, obviously the, what came to be known as the Green Scare ended up putting a fair amount of people in prison. Those were, in general, unless we find uh, out something that some of them were actually encouraged by an, a deep, deep undercover informant that we don't yet know about. Um, they were, you know, uh, people uh, engaging of those in those actions their own free will. But there have been a number of uh, trumped up cases against animal rights and uh, radical environmentalists. Do you know much about any of those? Yeah, you know, a similar tactic played out in, in those cases. You know, there was an informant named Brandon Darby. I think he's one of the better known informants of the Green Scare, where he was, um, you know, he was uh, responsible for trying to set people up in, um, uh, in in terrorism plots. There was a, an informant named Anna, a young young woman who set up a California man in a, in a terrorism plot, um, an environmental activist. And so the same types of tactics that we saw the FBI used against Muslims in the post-9-11 era. In the first few years of that era, I think it was like roughly from 2001 to 2005, we saw a number of these so-called green scare or animal rights cases. Um, and, it, and in some of those cases, the same types of tactics were used, that they were encouraging people to commit violence and, and facilitating um, that, that violence to occur. Yeah, that Brandon Darby is a particularly odious character. I, there's a documentary that focused on him. And, and I don't know quite so much. I've read about her but uh, of course, Brandon Darby actually Darby came out of the. He got his cred um, out of the uh, post Katrina uh, situation where he was very involved in it. And uh, anyway, that's a whole other story. But we do have uh, Camilo and Michael on the line. Let's talk to Camilo first. Go ahead, you're on the air. Hi, I I know that it doesn't fit uh, perfectly into the scheme of, of your talk, but I wonder if the murder of Fred Hampton. Uh, had any FBI influence, but we do know that there was an informer who later confessed about his role in in that uh, operation. Yeah, so I mean, there there are still questions about Fred Hampton's death. This is not an area that I'm uh, an expert on, but I, I, you know, obviously there was a pre-dawn raid um, in which Fred Hampton was shot in his bed. Um, 
prior to that, there was, you know, active use of informants in the Panthers, um, not just FBI informants, but also police informants as well. Um, there are a lot of really unanswered questions about this. Um, there's a movie that came out recently that explores that called uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. That's um, really well done. But I, this is something that I don't think there's a definitive answer on, but there's, like, the, like the, the fascination of Malcolm X, there's still a lot of open questions. Yeah, it may have served as a, a model of, of one type or another for the subsequent uh, operations. Yeah, well, I mean, you. I think the, you know, the troubling part of this is that there's there's a very long history of the FBI's um, infiltration and subversion of black political groups, you know, the 60s being the most famous era of that. But, you know, what we're seeing now in Denver and likely elsewhere is that the similar type of behavior um, happened during the racial justice movement as well, kind of history of repeating itself in that way. And of course, now they're, they, what do they call them, bl- uh, black extremist groups? What's the phrase for targeting uh, certain African-American organizations that uh, came out in the last couple of years? Yeah, so the FBI has since abandoned this term publicly, but the term that the FBI came up with was black identity extremist. There you go, yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Camilo. We got uh, Michael up next. Uh, always good to hear from you. Uh, Michael, go ahead. You're on the air. Oh, hey. Thanks. Um, hi, Paul. First of all, thank you for what you're doing. I really appreciate it, bringing a lot of light to this. Uh, uh, the question I have is a specific uh, incident. I really don't remember hearing any follow-up, but it was after some incidents in Portland, and a guy that was involved went to his home in Seattle or something, and I believe some agents, FBI agents, showed up at his door and assassinated him? No. Uh, he, well, he, I, he it was, uh, I believe that was in Olympia. Um, it was a guy who actually who actually killed a right-winger. I think that's what you're talking about with a, with a gun. Yeah, it sounds familiar. I don't remember the names and the details, but I remember it just kind of disappeared. I never heard any follow-up, and I was wondering. Right, he was, like, he was basically hunted down and assassinated, it seemed like. Anyway, you probably, Trevor, you probably know about this case we're talking about. Actually, I'm afraid I don't. I mean, I, I may have read about it uh, when this happened, but I don't recall their details right now. Oh, oh dear. I was, <laughs> I was hoping you'd be able to. But yeah, the guy, he, the, he, he was a, you know, he was a known, you know, part of the, uh, I, I, and I don't remember his name. Maybe somebody can call in, but it's it's not, it's not a huge thing. It's like uh, maybe Robbie, who's just calling, knows more about it. But yeah, he, 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 for, well, we don't. He was accused of because we, you know, he was basically seemed like it was an extrajudicial assassination. Fundamentally, yeah. you know, he was apparently he, he was accused of, and it seems like he probably did, but you know, it didn't actually go to court of of actually gunning down a a, a proud boy, I believe, uh, uh, during during a demonstration when things were really hot uh, that that summer, and then he fled, and uh, it was a uh, I, I believe it was. Uh, was it Homeland Security? Anyway, maybe our next caller will know. But yeah, he was just gunned down. And it seemed like, uh, you know, I think there's a, accusations that he had a gun, but I don't think there's any evidence that he actually uh, showed a gun. Anyway, yeah, uh, there, 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 maybe someone will know more about it, But that's basically what, what happened. Anyway. Yeah. I was wondering, is that something that seems to surface? Are there more incidents like that? Because that just kind of came and went. I thought the same thing. Well, innocent until proven guilty was thrown out. He didn't get his day in court. And we didn't hear the facts of the case. Anyway, that was just simply okay. my question. Well, thanks Thank for you. calling. So, yeah, I guess the question is, have you heard of any other, what seem, what's, you know, somebody who's, you know, uh, accused of a very, very serious crime, in this case, m- murder, and then before... You know, in a very, you know, in a time when there was really, really, I mean, you know, the, let's face it, the, it was a, a Joey, a, a, what's it, Joey Gibson, I can't remember the guy's name, Patriot Prayer from Vancouver, Washington, I'm sure you've heard the name. He and some of the Proud Boys and some other of these smaller right-wing groups started to get together well before that. Uh, during the, uh, I think even before Trump got into office, was it 2015? They started, and their kid just came to be these sort of ritualized or these sometimes very intense uh, altercations, which I, I went to, you know, half dozen of them um, at Waterfront Park or wherever, which, you know, led up to um, the summer of 2020. Anyway, and uh, so, so you know, uh, some people were arrested, and another, then there was a, a, a young Antifa. Um, a, a guy who was uh, uh, ran run down by um, some right wingers uh, down right just a few blocks from here, 
Um, and then they took, what, a year or more to actually arrest the guy, and they, they actually had the car. Anyway, there's, it's, been a, it's been very intense here in Portland. But anyway, I guess the general question is, do you know of other what seem to be extrajudicial assassinations of activists? No, nothing like that. Okay. I, yeah, I'm afraid I don't know anything like that. I mean, I do, yeah, I do, I do know, you know, like, I mean, one of the things that we explore in, in the podcast is that as the FBI was in, in 2020 pursuing racial justice activists, they, they appeared to be turning a blind eye to a lot of the right-wing activists, particularly among the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers during that same summer. There was a long history that summer of these groups committing, you know, significant violence. Um, in Portland, there were certainly examples of the Proud Boys um, stirring up um, trouble and causing violence there, and the FBI seemed to not be as concerned about that. But as far as like you know, uh, anything like you know the murder of someone that that, that those are not cases that I, I'm familiar with. Other than, of course, you know the ones we know about Malcolm X and Fred Hampton. You generally, sure, yeah, generally against against. I mean, more more recently. Yeah, right, right. Like in, you know, in the last few years. Okay, well, let's give let's give Robbie um, maybe the the last word. We've got about five minutes left, and uh, we're just running down. So go ahead, Robbie. Uh, I'll make it quick. I really appreciate. Uh, can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, I, I appreciate uh, all the work you're doing with uh, the Elfit Boys, and I, I just wanted to say, first off, yeah, the cops and clan go hand in hand, so they're never really uh, trying to find the people who are throwing the pipe bombs at activists um, here in Portland, and, and um, you know. But the moment that there was a shooting, yeah, they they tracked down that guy really quick. He did a vice interview before i don't really know why but yeah it was uh very unfortunate night and, and 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 when the they probably put him they probably put 30 bullets in that in his body but um it was very uh it was almost like it, you know they would never have to take that to trial but um i wanted to bring up here in portland what we had was rose city justice um and that was actually completely infiltrated by people who had been associating with police prior to uh, the uh, 2020 protests. So there were people who were planted and they started this Rose City Justice, which was kind of a slap in the face to the original Black Lives Matter, Don't Shoot PDX, which Teresa Rayford was a part of. But um, overall... Uh, so know, do you I, have do you have any, any anything to back up that claim? Oh, yeah. The people... Well, one of the guys got... Uh, uh, one of the person he organizes for Rose City Justice. I won't name names, but he was a sexual predator, and there was all sorts of photos of him meeting with. It wasn't outlaw, but it was some of the police chiefs. He was a, he was a part of some program with the police office in Portland. You know whether it was nefarious or not. The Rose City Justice totally started all of the drama with inside the uh, the Portland uh, uh, you know the resistance. I would say during 2020. And I'll never forget, but a lot of times what happened and what, you know, textbook, what I saw happen was we would go out, we would go out, and it, it wouldn't always have to be violent. They wouldn't always turn it violent. A lot of times what they would do is just dissolve it. And so, like, what would happen is we had a confrontation where we were marching down the street, the police blocked us off. And when they blocked us off, some of these people that were organizing from the Rose City Justice, they, like, tried talking to the police, and then all of a sudden they took a knee. And, and that knee, when that happened in Portland, by within the next week, Everybody was kneeling with police across America at these protests. And I feel like that was a direct textbook play from, uh, you know, maybe police officers or FBI or whatever, trying to diffuse, uh, you know, what they had and try to, you know, unite. And it, it was just my two cents I wanted to bring so, up. But also there was some Black Lives Matter activists in St. Louis, I think, prior to 2020 that were found burnt in a trunk of a car. And so, um, yeah, it's still, you know, it's, it's a very real thing when you put your neck out there. Okay, well, thank you. So there, there. Uh, thank you, Robbie. Good to hear from you always. Um, so Trevor, there's a lead for you. So you wish to follow. I think I had asked you before uh, when we uh, exchanged emails before if you knew anything about Portland or other cities. I mean, it's a probably a, a minor miracle they actually able to get those audio tapes that revealed um, that uh, informant in Denver. It's it's hard in, in the best of situations to get that information. Do you, anything else you're working on? Any other leads you have to, to find out anything? Have, has, have you gotten contacted from anybody that might have some leads about similar things? Yeah, so, so my, my goal is to, is to continue reporting on this. My, my sense is that what happened in Denver wasn't anomalous, that there were, you know, similar activities that happened around the country. And the caller, Rob, you know, I would invite you to look me up and send me an email if you have any more specific information on Rose City Justice, because I'd heard of a similar group in Denver um, that was, you know, was accused of kind of trying to diffuse 
uh, or kind of engineer the demonstrations in a way that people thought was kind of, um, you know, pro-police and was affiliated with the police in some way. And so I, I have been curious about the idea that there may have been actual front groups that were largely um, infiltrated by the police or even run by the police. And so that's an area that I'd like to look more into. So if anyone has any specific information on this Rose City Justice group, um, you, you can find my information online. But my hope is that, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I can use this as a, as a launching off point to look at how this happened in other cities, potentially Portland. I mean, my feeling is that it happened in Denver, it happened in Portland, it happened in Minneapolis, it happened in Chicago. I, I don't think it's it's reasonable to assume that it just happened in the one city. Okay, we are we are out of time, so I just want to uh, let people know you can go to Trevor Aronson, that's A-A-R-O-N-S-O-N dot com, and uh, you can also look up this Apple Boy, A- Alphabet Boys, it's on various uh, podcast platforms. Thank you so much, Trevor, we got to go. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Okay, and uh, just a quick reminder, uh, this is our our winter membership drive. If you do appreciate, and I know you do, this kind of programming, this is your opportunity to show your support for both this and other uh, morning public affairs and in general uh, KBOO programming. Go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321 on your mobile device or 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, uh, Ty, for uh, operating the board. Bye-bye. You're listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 FM. The time is 8.59 a.m. Miss Nanano, KBOO, Portland, 90.7 FM. You don't know. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification